Hello and welcome to I Spit on Your Grades, the possession episode. Not necessarily demonic possession, although I think that might be where we've all gone. I guess, first of all, we want to apologise for um, missing a few weeks. Circumstances arise, things happen, life happens, and unfortunately, we weren't able to record, but we're moving forward and hopefully going to hit you up every week with a new episode, he says, with a lot of confidence there. Before I go on, I should also remind you that I'm not here solo. I have other people. Uh, so let's give a big round of applause to Faye Ellis. Hi. And Christopher Ellis. What was? It, it did sound more like a toilet flushing from here. <laughs> that may be appropriate today because I do believe I have also been possessed because I feel there is a danger. I could also project I'll vomit at any point. And that is absolutely down to demonic possession and in no way the excellent Soho Home Festival Shockdown Saturdays murder mystery party that we attended yesterday. But I mean, I don't feel possessed. So I, I do think, Chris, maybe maybe there was something going on in that part uh, that you were doing that the rest of us were doing um, in moderation. That sounds bad, doesn't it? Chris is the only one amongst us as well who had shower beers. Where you just take a beer into the shower whilst you get ready. I, I don't have a problem. I'd opened a beer, I was drinking, and then I went to take a shower and finished my beer. Shower beer. I honestly feel like that is the dream, though. Because I don't understand how you have a shower and a beer at the same time. Because you've got water pounding down. So how do you not get it in your bottle or your can? No, it's... A shower doesn't cover your entire body constantly, though, does it? When you've got your arm there, it's easy enough just to lean your head to the side slightly and have a drink. Do you take a shower yes. break where you move it away and then take a drink? No, and then I move just it move back? my... It's not something I do all the time. I don't have a set standard for how I drink my beers in the shower or the ones I have in the toilet bowl or went to elsewhere around the house. I do not have a problem. I actually have this image, not a full image, just from the head up of Chris in the shower with the can just rammed into his mouth. Just knocks his head back when he needs a drink. They can carry on showering and... I've seen him drinking. That might be possible, to be honest. (laughs) Anywho, it was a fun night. A fun night was had by all until 4.30 this morning, and now we're paying the price. Mm-hmm. And hence, hence me being a little quieter than usual. I'm pretending I haven't got a hangover. I don't, but I'm very, very tired. Maybe I do have a hangover. I don't know. The world is upside down right now. I don't know what's going on. It's tough times, though, isn't it? It's a pandemic. We can, we can, we can let loose every now and again. I mean, we're like a party. It's the first party I've been to in well over a year. So <laughs> <laughs> even if we were on a zone or just in. Pairs, it was a lie. We were looking for a lie. Would you like to tell us a bit, Mercer, about your character from yesterday, um, the debut that she made on screen? Yes. Yesterday I played, uh, it, it wasn't the character's debut, but it was my, it wasn't even my debut, actually. I did remember we did go to Horicon and I went as, um, what's she called? From Tucker and Dale. Alice. 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 But I weren't as pretty, I don't think, when I was Alice. This time I did my own makeup. Sorry, Faye, I know you tried so hard. But I played Heather Hurtful. She's cast as the mean girl in horror films um, or in films in general. But really, she's really nice, but she's not. She's a bit conceited and just kind of thinks that she's nice. But obviously with the 80s, so I had fun watching makeup tutorials and just chucking different colours on my face. <laughs> I look like a fucking cloud. But 
Yeah, it was nice. Did you find the downside of makeup in that having to take it off at 4.30 in the morning while drunk gets that shit on a lot of towels? I could not. I bought some makeup wipes and I could not wait to get the makeup off and the wig off. Like, the second that game ended, I, like, wig were off and I were wiping my face down straight away. I don't know how people go about their daily lives with all that shit on the face. They, they don't have that much shit on, though, usually. That's the thing, because, like, obviously, when you're putting it on, you, you said you were caking it on. Yes. It's not normally just caked on in day-to-day life. But only around my eyes. Yeah. Um, my face, I tried to do, like, a, a light powder blend on my face mm. uh, but still it, I felt suffoc- suffocated throughout and I, like using mascara I just don't understand now you get to tip your eyelash we are like just painting your eyeball like I think I've scratched mine up <laughs> you'll get used to it with practice well I've got I've got enough to practice now the one because mm. I've got makeup kit and um mascara in my house so don't let good makeup go to waste well it were it it were temp- it, £10 off Amazon, but cost me £15 because I had to get next day delivery. Absolutely gutted I was. But anyway, enough about me and Heather Hurtful. What else has everyone been up to? Anything anything to report? We're still making our way through the Marvel films. Yeah, we've had a slight slowdown, but we did watch Thor and... Iron Man and Avengers. Yeah, I'm trying to think which ones we covered since the last time. We watched watched Avengers Assemble or of the title of it is Skate 3 and 4. Avengers Assemble still growing. Mm. Apart from that, I haven't watched a great deal else recently. No, we've just been pottering around. We've had a week off, so there's been a lot of painting being done and a lot of gardening being done. So, boring stuff. Life in it, adulthood. I guess I'd prefer our lives to the lives of the um, people in the films that we're going to discuss today. I don't fair. know. I, I'm not sure which I prefer right now, to be honest. Could be a bit of a thrill. You know? <laughs> I'm sure it would. I'm sure it would. I reckon that before we do move on to um, our choices, and just to be clear, with this episode, we are only doing the host choices. Just a time issue, really. But we did still put out and ask people for their recommendations for their favourite possession horror movies. So what did we get, Chris? Did we get anything exciting? We, we had a couple of people come back. Our friends at the House of Screams podcast, they came back saying, Hereditary, it's achingly beautiful in its dramatic horror and atmosphere and genuinely scared me, which is near impossible to do. Mm-hmm. So that's super. Gorehound at Zombie Slew came to us with the taking of Deborah Logan and saying that I'm sure every horror fan knows the big contender this episode, but I like this and only saw it well after release and after being talked into giving it at a world. Good so, choice. There you go. I didn't remember Deborah Logan until we discussed it. So it may I think it was okay, but it clearly didn't leave a massive, massive impact on me. Yeah. I really enjoyed the taking of Deborah Logan, but for some reason I just didn't think of possession. I it, it plays on the same themes as hereditary does, but in terms of dementia yeah. rather than grief. Relic. Mm. Relic, yeah, relic, yeah. And very aptly as well, just this last one, Corpse Pride at Noel underscore Kelly came back with, hmm, The Devil's Doorway and The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Mm. Never heard of Devil's Doorway. I think I have, but I can't think of what it is. 
I mean, there's some. There were some really good choices there from the public. Yeah, really excellent. In fact, what I do find interesting is um, that Gohound said we obviously know the the big contender for this. And interestingly enough, none of us, I'm guessing, went for what he thinks is the big contender. It, it was close on my list, but it wasn't ultimately chosen, but it was very close. If not for one very, very quick scene in particular that still lives in my head to this day. Are we, are, are we talking about the same film? We're talking about The Exorcist. The scene I was referring to was when Reagan is... On the bed. No, not the not that scene. Not the crucifix fucking. Let's call a okay. spade a spade. Um, it's the scene where she's getting a head scanned, I think, for the first time. And you see her eyes widen ever so slightly. And then the face of evil just jumps in. And you're like, where the fuck did that come from? And that scene is is proper scary, I think. I, I, do, I went to see it in a, a, a cinema screening once, the Odeon. And a woman actually shouted out during that scene because I'm assuming she'd never seen it. And this was the first time and she was genuinely scared. I went, oh! <laughs> <It came up. laughs> but yeah, no, we didn't pick The Exorcist. So I'm sorry to let everyone down. That would have been an obvious choice, but we're not obvious. We are. So should we, should we actually move on and talk about the films? Let's do this. I'm going to go first because it makes sense. Because I almost won last time. <laughs> and we ain't got a public choice. So it makes sense for me to go first. And I've gone for a film that actually probably falls into one of my all-time favourite film. Like, if I were to do, a, like, a list. I don't know how many in there, like, maybe a hundred. But I think this would probably play somewhere in my top films um, of all time. I've gone for 2005's Scott Derrickson directed The Exorcism of Emily Rose. For those who don't know what The Exorcism of Emily Rose is, I describe it as a courtroom drama meets demonic possession, but done correctly. It gives you a nice balance, I think, between the two. It plays it plays balance, so it gives evidence to support and evidence to negate demonic possession um, and actually gets you kind of thinking a little bit more about what is real and what isn't. Um, it's got... Laura Linner as the agnostic lawyer who's to, there to defend Father Moore, who is accused of murdering Emily Rose through neglect. Her entire career is purely based on being the best and her aims are to achieve partnership in a law firm. She's not entered this case for any reason other than to win. To start with, her response is to do whatever it takes to win the case and not because Really, she was defending Father Moore, but really because she's just pursuing her career goals. And then we have an absolutely devastating performance of Jennifer Carpenter, who is, it's no secret, I love anyway. Um, she's cropped up in my choices before. Quarantine. Mm. Um, nobody liked it. <laughs> but, but you can't deny her performance in this film is a bit gut-wrenching. Uh, and the contortions that she does with her body. And, you know, and it's years before some of the other films we're going to discuss. Mm-hmm. And I, I think with some of them films, we can see a little bit of influence from this, in my opinion. 
not to discredit them because uh, actually I'm going to be honest right from the get go both films that are coming up are really really good um cursed um, but yeah so we just we're watching the, the the basically we watch the case unfold so it starts with the death of Emily Rose and then we watch the court case to understand why Emily Rose has died and the actions that were taken by Father Moore and her family um and then there's also the supernatural elements that occur that actually make Laura Lina uh, start questioning her own beliefs. Anyway, so that's the basic kind of plot line. I love the film. Like I said, I love the film for its balance. Um, it doesn't play too strongly to try. It doesn't force religion down its throat and say, this is definitely a possession and that's what we're focusing on, which you do see in a lot of other films uh, where it's a possession. We don't really look at, like, apart from like The Exorcist, the scientific facts are normally pushed out of the window but what this also does is it tries to introduce science to explain possession mm. so it really does give a rounded argument and it and you almost feel or i almost felt when i was watching it like i'm a member of that juror or jury and i'm really i'm taking on everything they're saying and and there's parts of it like in times where i go that man needs locking up and then i'm like oh no but like that tape really kind of shows some evidence and the noises are quite scary that, that come from Jennifer as well. Anyway, um, what did you think? I agree with a lot of your points on there. I think she's fantastic as Emily Rose and I think not to make it too basic, but the stuff she does with her body is fantastic. You know, I could never bend that way. And I, I find in a lot, I mean, maybe not so much in my pick, but especially in your, your two's pick, your twos, how much Yorkshire do I want to be? Uh, I, I find that the things that are done with the bodies when they are possessed is just crazy talented. Like the, the way that the face contorts and to the point where the veins are sticking out of the side of the head. I don't know how much is done in post-production of that, but certainly you've got to have some level of bendiness <laughs> to even start that from the beginning. The only thing I found this time with Emily Rose watching it again, oh, the the script didn't seem to sit right with me, to be quite honest. Everything felt very, I've watched one law film and I'm going to throw everything I heard in that law film into this film. It was very cut and paste terminology. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, I, get, I get what you mean. If, if, almost like in Shin Godzilla, where they're trying to portray... Uh, again, a, a legal legal monster film. Yeah, that's that's more about how terminology around politics now politics works. So, yeah. Well, I know what you mean with this, but I'm just saying you feel is there's a lot of too much of objection sustained. Yeah, and like there was one scene in particular where she walks into the courtroom because she's late. It literally goes on for like three minutes, and it's like court's adjourned after three minutes. No, that won't happen. So I, I don't know why I think that the law side of it didn't sit right with me this time so much mm. as the story did. I thought the story were great and obviously a background and whatnot. I didn't have a problem with the courtroom stuff. No, no. It's done perfectly, efficiently. I think, as you're saying, though, with it being balanced, Mercer, I think they definitely pushed towards it being a genuine possession with the stuff that Laura Linney experiences throughout after she takes the case on. They don't hedge their bets and go, oh, it could be 50-50. They definitely push it to say, no, look, look at all this stuff that's happening to her. It's clearly 
clearly is something demonic. Yeah, but then that could just be her going out of it. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that could be in her head for all we know. She could just be, she's having a tough time. She could be imagining those things. I kind of put that down to um, almost a sense of, like, mass hysteria. Like the doctor, for example, who starts tripping out, thinking that something's coming for him. Because the furthermore, he tells these stories to them and he almost gets under the skin. I get what you're saying, though. But so out of the courtroom, yeah, it does imply that it's definitely um, a possession. And um, and obviously the evidence we see of uh, Emily, I forgot her name for a second there, other than the titular character of the film. <laughs> the evidence we see with Emily, obviously it heavily implies impression, but uh, impression, possession. But I do think that when we're in the court, they do kind of rebuke, or rebuke them things or yeah. at least throw up. And I like in. that, yeah. As I say, the court stuff is really even-handed. It's really good when they bring her witness on, the the one who studied possession throughout different cultures. That's really that's really good, really well handled. I say, just those two, as they say, when she has the objection to it, and she's like, well, no, you've heard from your, this, the expert in science, claim it's not possession, and it's just my witness that proved it is, or suggests yeah. it could be. But as I say, the stuff outside the courtroom is a little bit heavy on the demonic. I mean, that scene when the reluctant witness steps it steps out and gets hit by the car, that couldn't be more Omen-esque. True. I think you are going to make those references, though, purely because if you're going to do an exorcism film, you, you're definitely going to have nods to the Omen and to exorcism and stuff. I don't think you can physically get away from that. No, but what I'm, what I'm saying is outside the courtroom, is heavy, it's implied that is possession, as I say, rather than it just being in her head. If you're going to then take stuff from a, a possession, a possession demonic film, and so clearly reference it, you're using that because you want to show that there's something demonic going on. But at the same time, with everything that's going on in the courtroom, you could argue, if you were to flip the coin, that that was nothing more than a coincidence. It could have been that he just stepped out onto the road and got run over. Playing devil's advocate, but not really. I think what would have, what kind of doesn't support the possession, um, the emphasis of possession outside the film is that nobody outside of the prosecuting team experiences anything demonic. So if we'd have, uh, sorry, not the prosecute, the defendant team. So if, for example, we'd have had the prosecutor experience something at like waking up at 3am or something like that, then then it would have been, for me, yeah, definitely the heavy hand of the chain to force it. But because it's limited to the people that are within Father Moore's kind of circle and the ones that talk to him could imply that it is literally just him getting under their skin and everything that they're seeing is just, like you said, a coincidence. And, you know, the whole, like, the idea of waking up at 3am and it being the witching hour or whatever, and that's when you know, the demons are out and they're teasing you. Well, <laughs> that's, that's when the demons are out. That's when they, that's when they pop out of the house. For yeah, go, go Tesco's fucking rammed with demons three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> right, Blair. But the idea of that is, um, we all know, if you have an uneasy night and you wake up one night, you actually tend to do that quite a lot. So I wake up most times at about four o'clock in the morning, standardly. Okay. And that's just because I've had a dodgy night's sleep 
previously. Mm. And I'm trying to that cycle. True story, once woke up three o'clock in the morning with my fire alarm going off when I was living in a house during uni. All the guys were away for whatever, I think it was half term, so they'd all gone back home. Woke up three o'clock in the morning, fire alarm going off. Nothing on fire, got out of bed, got downstairs, fire alarm just turned off. Wow. See, you've just like backed up the film because that's what they do, this malfire and these fire alarms. So you've just backed up everything in that film. So, yeah, it was possession. Um, I think something that else that's interesting about the story is obviously, like, although it is fiction, it is based on fact and it is yeah. based on a life exorcism. And the imagery that they use of Emily is it does very much echo the imagery of um, Annalise, where from the was she German, I believe. I think so, yeah. But it does very much echo the imagery and the story does very much echo that, but it is obviously different. And I think that adds something to the film. So it says it's based on true story. And a lot of the times based on true story, we know means that they've taken a small concept or a small idea, like the Texas Chainsaw with Ed Gain. They've just taken the skin yeah. aspect and gone true story. Mm-hmm. Whereas this has got a lot of reliance um or a lot of weight off the back of the Annalise Kerman um, exorcism. So yeah. that's quite an interesting fact. I do love this film. I do have to say one thing. The one thing that does disappoint me in the film um, on the second watch is I just wish it had the courage to just make him guilty. And that well, be it. I- I did ask at the end of that because I'm I'm not au fair with the law, so I did have to ask Chris whether that was allowed to just go. Yeah, but you're technically free. It's like, hang on, that seems a bit like if you if you want, yeah, if you wanted him to be free, why not just plead not guilty? I think why they wanted not? to mark him as they wanted to attribute the fact that he'd done something wrong in the in the eyes of the law. But we don't, I mean, in reality, that court case, we don't know how long it went on for. Um, and they do, I think they do do time served in yeah, cases exactly. where no benefit to putting someone in prison. So, I mean, that's the thing. He is found guilty of neglect. So it's not like, it's not that we we give them the verdict and they say innocent or we cut, we cut the credits from them and they give the verdict. But no, he's actually, he's actually found guilty. And it's just, as I say, it's time served. But he's actually allowed to go. Mm. But I wish they hadn't done that because I think that it almost kind of makes you wonder, like, makes it makes me wonder, did the jury really think he was guilty or were they just too scared to say, actually, we think there might have been something demonic in there? Um, so we're just going to say guilty, but then say, you can go free. And I wish they'd have just had a definitive, like, actually, we don't believe you. Mm. And we think you should serve time for this. And that would have, I think, given it a bit more of a, given the film a bit more of an edge. Because obviously, whenever you watch these type of films, we expect him to walk free. Like, we don't yeah. expect Laura Rilliday's character or the family to be put ultimately in the wrong. We expect them to be walk free. And yes, he was put in the wrong. But we were like, but let's do time serve. That's, that's good. Makes me go, well, he's not. They didn't really think he was wrong. So that's the only thing that gets me about it. I just wish they'd have um, 
had the courage to just say guilty. Okay, fair enough. Fair point. What else is there about the film? So obviously we've talked about amazing Jennifer Carpenter is, which we can't take away. Just to echo one of your points, most, not echo, pick up on one of the points you made, pretty much the body scenes and the contortion was her. Um, there's, there's, I think there's a little bit of trickery in one of the scenes where they tie ropes on her so that she can lean a bit further back in the church. Right, okay. But pretty much most of it. But when I was looking at when I saw the face contortions, I felt like there might have been a bit of CGI on there because I know she's got a big mouth, but that mouth was like Joker esque across <laughs> her face. Sometimes. I'll be like, mm, I think that's a bit CG. I think. Yeah, I mean, maybe, like I said, that's why I said I don't know how much of it is done in post production because mm. you can, you know, you can make anything happen on camera these days, but. I, like I say, I would assume that you must have some flexibility initially yeah. to be doing what she did. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, overall, unless you two have got anything pressing to say about the film that's going to push it to either win or lose. <laughs> I mean, just a question in general. This is something I put down because it happens in most possession films. But in possession films, why do they tie them to a bed? Why is it always to a bed? I mean, the, the only the only example where I know it doesn't happen is probably in The Conjuring, where um, she's tied to a chair in the basement. But it just always seems to be on, like, a bed that they're tied to, and it all seems very, I don't know. I suppose because normally they're always, but traders have these massive four-poster beds, which I suppose makes it easy to lash someone to. Uh, and you want them to be able to keep them... As comfortable, I suppose, as possible while you're doing it. It's a bit buggered we are. We've got no post ends. We've just got a headboard and an ottoman at the end. So, what, are you going to tie me down? Are you not? How do you tie her down normally, Chris? I don't. I let her just thrash around. It's fine. My <laughs> own. Oh. <laughs> do you know, I, I think Chris is right. I think it's just a comfort thing. Hmm. Um, and also, it might be kind of like to play on your own insecurity, like your own fears as as of a viewer, because where is it? You're kind of supposed to be safe in your own bed, aren't you? Like mm-hmm. that's like a, a sanctuary. Like you go to bed when you feel like shit. Like you go to bed when you're tired. You go to bed when you're emotional. You wrap yourself up, and it's a safe place. So for it to suddenly become a place where a demon can come out and make your body convulse everywhere and you know, do horrible things might, it's a bit scary. I tell you what as well, totally off subject, but just speaking about beds in general, because beds are great. Um, I don't know about yourself, but since working from home, I found that I can literally just go and have a little lay down upstairs sometimes. So in the in lunch hour, I'll take myself off to bed and just have a little lay there and watch my phone in bed. It's great. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think everyone has a secret lay down during the day. Um, everyone I work with at lunchtime, it frustrates because they all go, take your dog for a walk. And I'm like, sitting down and watching Teller. <laughs> Way. <laughs> um, the dream. You're not alone there, Mercer. <laughs> just, just be- sorry, just before you wrap up, Mercer, I just need to give a shout out to Emily Rose's e- most emo boyfriend as well. <laughs> I never knew how dead I was until I found her. Come on, kid. Just fucking put on some My Chemical Romance and just get the right stuff. If there's a sequel to this, he would be in full black eyeliner, MCR on. 
proper big huge fringe grown out. No, 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 no. I'm not going to be in your talent show. <laughs> Any final Anyhow. words, Mercer? <laughs> My final words are the reason I love this film, as I've said before, is because it's got some excellent performances. It's got some genuine eerie moments in it that do freak you out, such as when Erin wakes up and that cassette player is played in the living room. And it's, can you imagine waking up to someone screaming in your living room, demonically possessed? That would freak you out. It's got a genuinely freaky moment. But it does try and balance the story out with logic as and doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't just try and thrust religion or science down your throat. It does try and give you a little bit more of a balanced argument. Mm. I think it's slightly ahead of its time. And I know it's 2005, but if we consider like the the amount of possession films that have been released, I think this one's like slightly ahead of its game. And it's definitely a lot more intelligent than a lot of the films out there around that time and possibly a lot of it's kind of the films that come after it. It's just a film that I think challenges you. It challenges you to challenge your beliefs and to challenge whether you would put your faith in religion or put your faith in science and it's a difficult call. Um, Even if you're not a religious person like the the lawyer, uh, Laura Linner, it still makes you question uh, and it's just a really good fucking film, and I've watched it loads, and I think everyone needs to watch it and just say, yeah, actually, it is a really good film, and even though, I've got to say it, because I don't want to be a douche this week, even though it's up against two other really good fucking films, I do think it's just got a little bit of an edge, because it is just that little bit different from what we would expect from a possession film. So. My pick next then, after Mercer's very good choice, Dips and Emily Rose. I'm looking at Echo, what you said. There are actually three really good choices this week. But don't let that put your vote in for mine, because it's the best one. It is 2010. It is from Daniel Stamm, and it is The Last Exorcism. I'll just pause while everyone applauds at home. You always pause for the applause, but they never come. Everyone at home is sitting there applauding. They're standing ovations. Like, wait for them to settle down, and then I will tell them about the film, even though they've seen it because they know it's brilliant. So Patrick Fabian plays Carter Marcus, who is a minister in the South, in the USA. He is a man who completes sham exorcisms, although not in the way you may think. This isn't a purely con artist financial trick he is a man who understands that possession may not actually be possession sometimes all a possessed person actually needs or a rumored possessed person actually needs is just to have the sense that they've had the exorcism completed and that they're now no longer demonically possessed to be okay so he's going around doing his service he reads of an exorcism gone wrong where a child is actually killed during it and then finds out that the Catholic Church is actually opening a school for exorcists so look forward to reading that book when it comes out school for wizards no school for exorcists is the way to go and in order to limit the damage from them opening this school and people performing exorcisms he decides to take the documentary crew that are filming him doing his exorcisms and show how he completes fake scam exorcisms on people 
he finally gets a letter, top of the pile, which advises him that Ashley Bell, who plays Nell, is actually possessed, and off he goes into the deep backwards. Then things go slightly squiffy from here, as they uh, tend to do in these circumstances. So there you go, that's basic outline for you. The reason this is so absolutely brilliant is not just because it's got Howard Hamlin from Better Call Saul, yeah. which takes, a, if you watch Better Call Saul, it still takes a while to get him out of that mindset when you watch him in anything else. It's not just, even though he is brilliant in this, and that's what, one of the reasons here. I say, reason is great. He is brilliant. It's just, it does absolutely spectacularly well in one hand discrediting and showing the danger of religion and dogma and how you can get stuck, stuck and swept away in the sheer tide of this stuff going on and how you can end up just believing things that aren't there and in evidence in the fact that he gives out he bets some 10 bucks that he can fit his banana bread recipe into his sermon. And he does. He has a more hallelujah and pray, amen, and along to his banana bread recipe. Just because it's not what you say in these things. People get swept away with the Baptist preachers and the deep south in how you say it and how you come across. So the one hand, that part is done absolutely brilliantly. And on the other hand, it then shows that, yeah, this is actually a real case of demonic possession. And the scary stuff they do and the demonic possession part is absolutely ruined and genuinely creepy and unnerving. And we have that slow... We don't have a car crash between him showing us a scam and then five minutes later, suddenly it's in full exorcist mode. We have that absolutely perfect through-lined where he believes it's a scam. He takes a ship, get turned up, trying to convince her it's a scam. She goes to the hospital... Because he believes, obviously, medically, it must be an issue. It can't possibly be something that is actually demonic. And we have that slow slide then to the actual full belt, absolutely nut job mentalist. There's the last seven minutes of the film, which I remember being a lot longer the first time I watched it. But no, it's about seven minutes long, the last, the last scenes, where it just goes full nut job and just breaks down. But yeah, so that is why... I absolutely love this film. I don't remember the ending being that long. I do remember it being batshit crazy, like really fucking weird and like what the hell is actually going on. But this time around, because this is the second time I've watched it since I was third time, third time I've watched it. It made a lot more sense, the ending this time. When I previously, so I've seen this film a few times, and I've always previously thought that the ending uh, was weak because I felt like it came out, like, came out of nowhere. Um, but this time, I, I appreciated it a lot more. But I was thrown for six, because I've seen this film loads. And my recollection of the ending ends with him running into the fire. And I don't know whether I've just, like, turned the film off or whether something different's happened. But I watched it. So it's the first time I opened my DVD. So it's the first time I opened the DVD that I've got. Um, so I've only ever seen it, like, at Fright Fest or on the Horror Channel. Um, and there's this chase scene in it that I'm like, what is this? How do I not recognise or remember this scene? It's funny you should say that because I said exactly the same. And I said, I do not remember it ending like that. So I don't know if we have seen an alternative version somewhere else. Do you know, I think maybe the thing is, 
when you watch so many horror films, they can kind of mingle into one a lot of the time. And maybe we just misremember on the regs. Possibly. It just felt, it just felt like it was the very first time I'd ever seen that ending. So, like, everything about the film, you know, I know what's coming up next. I remember it runs to the fire. I'm ready to press stop. And then she starts running away, and I'm like, looking around my house, thinking, what the fuck's going on here? Where did this new fangled ending come from? Mm. Um, and actually, with that, it made me go, oh, no, that makes sense, because it reverts back to something else in the film earlier. Um, so why would that not be the ending? <laughs> but it, it did feel like it was the first time I'd seen it. Yeah. Good thing, because um, all the way through watching the film, all I kept thinking to myself is, <clears throat> this film's really good, but the ending's pants. Um, <laughs> And I know when I get to ending, I'm just going to go. Oh. That's the thing. I I was before I watched it again. I was fully ready to sit here and go. Look, if we just ignore the last ten minutes or so, which is awful, the rest of it's absolutely outstanding. But no, I watched it this time. And go. Yeah, it's it's not the perfect ending I'd I'd want, but it works. And there's it's nowhere near as bad as I remember the ending being. No, not at all. Off track slightly, but not. Last Exorcism was the same year as Kill List, right? No, Last, Ex- Last Exorcism was 2010. Oh, oh, right. Kill List was the year after. Okay. It's just uh, funny because I look with, uh, like, the ending of Kill List is fucking batshit crazy, as everyone knows. Yeah. Uh, which is similar to this. A bit batshit. Yeah, yeah, I remember looking this to pieces. And then when Kill List were on, with, oh, it's amazing. No one's ever done anything like this before in my life. <laughs> and I were obviously just a hypocrite. One thing I think, not one thing, but something I think is interesting about the choice of specifically mine and Chris's is I do think there's a lot of parallels between The Last Exorcism and The Exorcism of Emily Rose, as in the both built around, and I know exorcism films tend to have similar things, but the both built around religion and debunking the fact of possession, but not fully being able to. And we've also got the both of the lead characters are two extremely talented young actresses at the time um, who can do remarkable things with their bodies, mm-hmm. <laughs> which really took my life. And they've got that, like, such a sweet, like when you first introduce them, they're both sweet and full of hope and dreams and expectations and life's going to go somewhere. Um, and then we're, they're shrouded with a really religious family. And let's not forget that they've both got exorcism in the title. Oh my God. It's the same film. It might as well but, be. You're quite right though, Merson. Yeah, that deeply religious family plays a bit. And also with this one, they made that, they made that link to essentially poverty because there's shit backwards towns where there's rampant po- poverty it's shitty living conditions and religion's running absolute riot through them and that, that's why she gets the free dms which i'm not i wasn't pleased about because i've been after a pair of dot martins for years and someone comes along and just gets a free pair like that and also how was the producer woman going to walk around after that what was she going to walk around in she said she'd got some other shoes in car. Uh, do you know why they had to do that scene? Apparently. Because um, she was meant to be barefoot throughout the entire film, Ashley Bell. But 
they couldn't cover that in insurance. So they introduced this scene where she gets these red Doc Martens. Nice. <laughs> so there's no reason for her to, like, wear the shoes at night time and stuff. Because, obviously, in the scene, she's so excited about getting something that she'd never in her life be able to to have. Mm. So having them on at bedtime and stuff would be like, you know, like when you're a little kid and you get something, like your princess dress. I didn't have one, but I'm assuming you did. I know. I, I had a very formal well, adult you, dress. Um, <laughs> what princess dress then? <laughs> no, but you know, like when you get someone, like your favourite teddy bear or something, and you just, that's not going to work because everyone goes to bed with a teddy bear. Your favourite princess dress, kids do it all the time, like my nieces have done it. They get some and they just refuse to take it off because they're so happy to have it. And I think, do you know, for me, the worst part about this film is, and what, what but not in a bad way, what I love about it is, I really, really feel for Ashley Bell. I really, really like her. And mm. I think she's so sweet. And I hate the horrible things that are happening to her, even more so than I hate, hate what happened to Emily in The Exorcist of Emily Rose, because I feel like she just had a little bit of a stronger personality. Not not in a negative way, but a strong, she was a bit stronger as a person. Yeah. And I feel like I feel so bad for... Actually, but and I guess because we met her as well, and she's so sweet in real life, you're kind of like, oh no, this is awful. I did. um, I I think obviously we were talking before about the exorcism of Emily Rose having the really good uh, practical effects. This does too. I I don't know what Ashley Bell does with her frigging neck during that barn scene, but that cracks. Again, could be probably is post production. I don't know, but it's so effective. The scene where where she goes, oh, I'll leave her. I'll leave her alone if you can just be quiet for ten seconds. And starts breaking her fingers. That is such a good scene. Like, she is... Ashley Bell is so good. Like, that was the very first thing I saw her in. And I was literally blown away by her performance. Because, like you said, the way she moves her body and the mean... Like, for such a sweet-looking girl, when she does mean, her face, like, really represents mean. Like, you wouldn't want her to be, like, giving you attitude. She's she's so good in this film. Oh, God, stop gushing about it. Quick, negative. There is no negative. This runs at an absolute breakneck pace as well. In the first half hour, we've met Cotton, seen his old congregation, know he's conducting sham exorcism, and gone through the original exorcism that he puts Nell through, all in the first 30 minutes, and pace never drops from there. It's only weighs in at 87 minutes, I think. So there's not a lot of room for that. There really isn't. I've got a note on here saying she killed the cow. What was that? Because there's a load of farm animals who are being slaughtered. Oh, okay. So because they thought that's one of the reasons they call him in because they keep she keeps waking up covered in blood. Right. Okay. When she kills the cats. Oh, that is brutal. Farm, that is brutal. That is really brutal. Um, and I think this is what's good about th- this film is it doesn't shy away from the violence that she possesses when she's possessed. Mm. If that makes sense, yeah. Like the way she attacks a brother and the way she kills the animals, like, it doesn't shy away from it, and that's really good. Also, because I don't think he's had enough credit yet. Patrick Fabian mm-hmm. in this film is completely mesmerizing. I legitimately feel like I'm watching one of them televangelist people yeah. at three o'clock or someone and I might give it up because I'm so enamoured and charmed by everything that they do and again, everything that they say. Again, that's, they suck you in with feeling 
feeling really nice about it, feeling really bad for him. Because again, he's another, even though he's conducting sham exorcisms and getting paid for them, it's still a service and he's still helping people. And he's trying to do a good thing with what he does here to actually the final exorcism he's looking to perform to debunk it. He's a nice guy. He's doing with family. He's doing a good thing. And even when, unlike when she turns up at his motel and he takes her to the hospital, he's doing all the right things the whole way through. But he's still taking that money, isn't he? And he is setting it up so that it looks like they are possessed with the shaking beds and the lights turning off and the electrocuting her with a nine volt battery. As, so that, as, <gasps> as he says, as he says, that, it's like people have to have the whole, they have to believe that he's actually performed an exorcism. Or if they won't buy, he can't rock up and just put his hand on the head and go, you're cured. <laughs> Why I do, not? I do love the way when he's got the cross, how the, the smug look he gives to the camera when he makes the smoke come out of it and poof, he's like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a proper smug-ass look. So, question about the film and the ending. Um, obviously, we have, like, very at the start when he says, in these small towns, people will literally tell you anything because it, the there's always a story. And we have people talking about a cult. So obviously the cult is real, I'm guessing, and this is the father's cult, uh, the cult with the, the vicar or whatever. Who is the father of her child? Is it the devil or is it a brother? I think it's the devil. I, I think, think it's, it's the devil. devil. If they'd have really wanted to and get rid of him, they could have gone, oh yeah, it was, it was the brothers, but now she's been taken into care and things are being dealt with. But they just give him that random guy's name who works at the uh, the diner, just trying to throw him off. They could have gone any way with telling him anything just to get rid of him. I'm sure it's definitely supposed to be the devil, especially with the way it actually ends, and when you got that huge, massive flame and kind of demonic kind of. That's what's because typically when a child is the the product of the devil, then that child's raised to take over the world. Well, this child was thrown into an inf- a fire. Maybe it needed to be fed to the fire for some mm. sort of ritual. I don't know. It could probably do with tidying that up a bit, but then again, it doesn't detract hugely from the film. As a result of this, we've now picked up um, The Last Exorcism 2 from Poundland. Not a pound, two pound. <clears throat> so I guess we'll let you know whether anything anything's explained. I've seen The Last Exorcism Part 2. Okay. What I suggest you do is go back to Poundland and tell them you made a mistake. You made a big mistake and you need to rectify it. I'm not going to lie to you. The only reason, it wasn't actually on the back of this film that we bought it. The reason was when we were looking at, for some reason, artwork for this episode, The Last Exorcism 2 came up and I have never seen a poster like it. It made me howl. It was ridiculous. It's basically her bent backwards and coming forwards and then the shadow of her feet looks like looks like a two. I was like, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Um it's it's very, very, very different. Oh. Like in tone in in everything. It's 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 bigger budgeted. Let's forget about let's forget, let's forget you ever said that and go back to the superior actual superior film the last okay. exercise. Yeah. Let's no. let's talk about the weird assumption that he's on the guy they're claiming slept with now is obviously gay. I'm not sure if that's because he works in a diner, if all diner workers are gay in the US. Because he says it practically, then actually say it out loud because he's religious and religious. But he does say, I'm not, you know, into, you know. And she's a 
a city girl. She knows exactly what these old scare boys are like. We we know that because we knew that he said that. It's when she's in the truck after. It's like, well, he's obviously gay. It's like, why is he obviously gay? Well, he kind of kind of said it, but it's a weird line to deliver in a way that does make it sound like people who work in diners are obviously gay. I didn't actually get that. I just it, it, was, it was just a joke, Mercer. We were just trying to make a joke and. You mansplained and ruined everything, it's fine, I'm, don't worry about it. Talk about creepy artwork as well, with the last sexes of two cover, but going back to actual decent artwork, the drawings that Nell's done afterwards, we see the happy drawings at the start of the film, and then we see the ones with the absolute bloodbath and people on fire and look all over the walls and when they go back there later on. Proper, like, art attack gone to hell, essentially. Yep. So, slightly off topic, but related to the pictures. When I was younger, my mother found underneath my bed um, books, um, like exercise books. And in these exercise books, there were there were two different things. One was a family that had been kidnapped and chained up. And every page would be another year of them aging until they die. And the other was just pictures of decapitated bodies and heads. I think she got that when I was about maybe like seven or eight under my bed or something. Um, I actually blame the evil dead for the decapitated pictures because I think that's what I was trying to um, emulate. All I'm saying is it doesn't mean you're possessed sometimes during these bad pictures. It just I mean, means I, it's an active mind. It means that, you know, a therapist would have a fucking field day with stories. But I, I can't talk, mate. I used to write stories about being abducted by aliens. No one believe in me, so I killed myself because no one believed me that I were touched by aliens. So you're not alone. <laughs> that is really dark. But back to the film. Oh, yeah, a pair of therapy sessions <laughs> over now. Oh dear. Back to the film. Back to the film. If, does anyone have anything else they want to add before I sum it up? No. Um. I, somewhere I made an only fools and horses. Joke, but I can't remember why or what it was in relation to. So, no, I've got nothing else to say, I don't think. To be honest, I'd like to jump in with some kind of reason not to vote for it, but I can't. So, I'm just going to shut up and accept this choice. There you go. And with that little bit there, I won't say much else apart from to say it's a brilliant film, genuinely creepy. The performances from Patrick Fabian and Ashley Bell absolutely spectacular brilliant from start to finish story works awesomely you completely buy every part of it and the ending doesn't ruin it as much as you would think and mercer also likes it so there you go total win please vote last exorcism thank you so my pick next i feel it's moving away from the theme of what you guys have covered already in terms of possession because this I would say it plays more on the psychological aspects of the genre and introduces themes within it that could be portrayed as possession. Of course, I'm talking about 2018's Hereditary. Now, I'm going to pause for applause because it's going to be happening out there. I know it is. Um, Tony Collette plays Annie, who's recently lost her mother, who for some time had been suffering with mental health issues. And she is coming to terms with that loss and feeling guilt and regret and how she could have handled things better. She starts to explain what kind of effect it had on her, what what effect her mother had 
on her growing up um, and how it's made her how she is today. Um, the rest of the family are also grieving, particularly Annie's daughter, Charlie, played by brilliant Millie Shapiro, who's incredible on TikTok. You should go and find her. She's amazing. Um, she's also coming to terms with the loss of a grandmother who she considers to be her favourite member of the family. And they both turn to the spiritual realm in search of answers and how to deal with it. It turns out that things are not as they seem, as you're aware, if you've already watched the film, which I'm absolutely sure you have. And the thing that's so clever about Hereditary is it veils the possession the entire way through as being grief and dealing with the loss of a loved one. So it it's quite, you, you can feel the pain in it as you're watching it. You can feel how much the family's hurting, particularly when eventually we do lose Charlie in what we assume is a car accident, but isn't actually an accident at all. It's planned as part of the coming of, I, I don't, I never know if I'm going to pronounce this right. Paymon? Paymon? Paymon. With an L? Without an L? Paymon? Anyway, it's coming. It's planned as part of that um, brutal accident as well. Like That knocked me for six, that scene. When you, you're not expecting it. I mean, she's, only, she's not been in the film that long. And she's driving. And so Peter's driving. And then just wham, her head gets knocked off. And you're like, Jesus fucking Christ. That is a punch in the stomach. It's it's interesting as well to see the reaction that Annie has to losing Charlie as she just losing her mom. Because this something so raw about the grief she portrays in it. It's so, it's, it hurts you to hear her screaming and to see her just not wanting to be her anymore because she cannot physically deal with the pain of losing a daughter and everything that comes about after it, how she blames Peter. I understand that I'm not talking much about the possession side of this, <laughs> but I think this film, its strengths are in its characters and the development. And yes, the possession side of it is absolutely incredible as well and totally through me to the point where the first time I watched it, I wasn't actually sure what the ending was because I'd built up an ending in my head and it wasn't that. And because of what I'd seen the whole way through, I was wholly confused. So when I went back and watched it again, knowing what the ending was supposed to be, I just made it 20 times fucking better. It's an amazing film. Um, the setup throughout is incredible. I would say, for me, this does feel like a completely different film. Uh, it, it is a completely different film to the choices that... Chris and myself picked uh, because of the where the emphasis lies on this one, which is the grief. I don't think this film would have worked if anybody other than Tony Collette was in that role. I am like in awe of her talent and the realism of her performance is it's ridiculous. And I, I know she's good, but this film literally just emphasises how good she is. I've been a Tony Collette fangirl since Muriel's Wedding. I adore her and I've loved her for years, but you're quite right, this was something else entirely. They all do. I think even, like, Gabriel Byrne, I wouldn't say he had... As, is it Steve? Yeah, Steve. Yes. I wouldn't say he had the biggest part in the film, but even his part feels relevant. It feels important. And Peter's a spe oh god. So when when they're in the car and Charlie's being decapitated, which is fucking horrible. I've just said it, I'll say it again, it's horrible. When he pulls over 
from any lesser film, you would have someone screaming and shouting and freaking out. But this film just has him dealing with it and dealing with the consequences in his head of what's just happened. It's like, what do I do now? And he doesn't even look back. It, It just doesn't, it just carries on as if nothing's happened because he can't physically process it. And it's so fucking clever in doing that. I love that it doesn't go over the top. I think one of my <clears throat> one of my favourite scenes in the movie is the morning after when he wakes up and we're focusing on his face and then we hear Tony Collette scream. And it just... I think the brave thing that Ari Aster does in this film is he doesn't, like, move away from something. He don't cut away from something. No. When he... When, other films would go, this is the natural end. He lingers and it just makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that, there's that focus on his face while she's screaming and it just don't go. And you're just like, oh my God, this is horrible. Like, just move from him because he's getting, you started to kind of see the, the, the real realization of the impact of what he's done mm. kind of like appear on his face, you're like, this is awful, I do not like this at all, but in a good sense. It does it with um, the dinner scene after Tony Collette loses her shit, which is the best scene in the film, I think, when mm-hmm. she just starts screaming at Peter. Um, and she starts off, oh God, it's so emotional, because she starts off saying, I know you're in pain, and I know that you you have to live with what you've done every day. And it's almost like a, like a backhanded kind of attack, yeah. as in... It's your fault, and I know you're trying to deal with that, but I can't. But anyway, that seems amazing. And then he kind of like goes, it's your fault that she's at the party. And Gabriel Byrne's trying to be all calm and cool it down. But when when she walks off, and it just lingers on Gabriel and Peter sat at the table for, for quite a, what feels like mm. quite a long time, and you're like, what's going to happen? This is intense. And then it ends, and you're like, oh, God, what? I don't know. Uh, oh. I love in that scene how... Her words aren't. Her words start off not chosen. It's just pure passion coming out of her mouth. But then she has to dial it back and go, "Hang on, this is my son," sort of thing. I've got to think about what I'm saying here. It's the line where she says, "That was it. Your face on that, that fucking that, face." That face <laughs> on your face. And it's like <laughs> that's that's why I'm wondering whether she's actually how much of that is Ari Aster's script and how much of that is uh, just ad libbing. Because mm. I doubt. Arias, the rest of the script doesn't show that she's the kind of person who's going to suddenly trip over her words like that. Mm, like she's, she's, quite... she's, she's a smart woman, and so she's carefully, the word, apart from the words that slip out when she's not meaning to, but she never starts tripping over words or making no sense whatsoever. Mm. So I'm wondering whether she's ad libbing and she's got, oh, that face on your face, and they've gone, no, it just works, keep it. Mm, so good, so fucking good. There's not a moment in the film where I feel like Tony Collette's acting. There's not a moment where I feel like she's working from a script. Everything, for me, for her, specifically for her, I've got to emphasise that, because I do, with some of the others, there are little things where I've got, "Mm," whatever. But with her, everything just feels so authentic, and it just feels like it's really happening. She's, I, I just, I can't, I can't express how amazing she is. You were saying earlier as well about that uncomfortableness. I think you you, you get that right from the start with this film. Because I think Ariaster, I, I mean, I don't know who did the music. I do apologise. should have looked into that. But whoever's done the score for it, it's it's that underlying bass that gives you that sense of dread. Right? And you don't know why. 
you do it. I mean, that, that, you know, that could link back to the fact that all this is happening within Charlie and within Peter and within Annie, and, and, but they don't know why it's happening. That's conveyed through the music in that you, you, you have absolutely no idea why you should be scared of a scene opening up on a funeral, but you are. You're uncomfortable about it and you don't know why. It's so clever. Just it's, so clever. I think it's with that cold, detached style that he directs with as well. There's no, even though it's a family and we see him at school and everything else and the party, there's no warmth in any of those scenes. No. They're all shot absolutely stone cold. We don't really get to see a lot of warmth between the family either, do we? To be fair, it's very much like your sister need, like, take your sister out, do this. It's very much like they're stuck in, they forgot to appreciate each other. Well, that harps back to her mom's mental issues and she's growing up scared that the same thing is going to happen to her because the hereditary, it runs in the family. So she's terrified that she's going to end up like that. So I think she distances herself to try and be all calm and collected and clinical so that that won't happen to her. But obviously, you know, there are other reasons why that's happening. More specifically, that it's all for Paymon. Paymon. I can't pronounce I'm never going to be able to pronounce that. Sorry. Just something I can't do. I do enjoy this film, Fair, but there are <laughs> some things that I don't kind of get. So first of all, I just don't believe someone's had to be taken off by a telephone post. But I've not tried it, but I just don't believe that that would be the case. Like, to clear off, like, take off her head. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I don't believe it would be in as... If it, if it was with enough force to take it off, I don't think it would be in as good condition as it is when it's lying there. It may it'd just be pulp, I imagine. Well, I mean, we do have to suspend some disbelief in all of our choices, I'd say. You know, I, I don't believe that Ashley Bell can snap a neck back in real life and still survive, but there she is still living after that neck snap. She can do. She told us that. That's right. No, I just think, like like you said, Chris, like you'd have to hit that with some force, which would, like, proper impact the face. Like, she hits it face on, I assume. Unless, like like you said, there's some kind of wire set up, like piano wire or cheese wire to put it off. I don't know. This is the thing. Everything is planned. So, and, you know, I don't know how. I don't know how, but it is just part of the plan. I'm, I'm not here to defend how a head would or wouldn't splatter on a post. That's not what I'm yes, You are. If you want them votes, you need to back up the the validity of that particular scene. But can I say one thing, actually? That was, for me, so when I saw this film, that was the single-handedly most shocking scene in the film. And not because of what happens, but because of the way that they marketed the film, with Charlie appearing to be the lead character throughout. Um, and I thought that were a very clever marketing trick that literally... At that point in the movie, you've already decided what's going to happen for them today, like, because of based on, like, what the, the story that's happening and the fact that Charlie's in the trailer. She's, like, the fuck. I can't even remember seeing Peter in the trailers, to be honest. Um, but that, like, literally, like, I think that's very clever because it just makes you have to kind of reevaluate everything. In like a split second, you're like, what's going on? Well, in the trailer, when they show the funeral, that's actually Charlie's funeral. It's not a mum's. It's made out to be a mum's in the trailer because the only time that Annie cries is when Charlie dies. Like, yeah, yeah so it's Charlie's death. It's not. Um, it's not a mum's. The problem. I, 
this isn't a problem per se but the problem I have with hereditary is I've got so much stuff I want to gush about in terms of how it's filmed in terms of the way it uses symbolism within the film and you know how you get the glimmers every time Paimon is there just these little little things that you pick up on and I, I love it so much but I can't do it enough justice because A, I've not got enough time and B, I'm partially hungover. So I can't, it's hard to get out just how much I love this film. I'm sure you can hear how much I do. So, you know. I think on the on the flip of what you've said, like because the film is really good and it's really intelligent and it's, it's focus is quite different. And it because it does play, like, like I said, we'll say it elevated. It plays a little bit more elevated. So it needs the audience to think and use its mind versus just giving us everything on the screen. Mm. Um, I think that also, for me, is what opens it up for kind of some less positive interpretation of the way things have been done. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it makes me, some of the some of the choices that have been made within the movie feel odd. I'll never, I'll, I'll, I'll never regret saying this, and I stand by it 100%. The headless body floated up to the treehouse, for me, is just so out of place. It is. It looks bad. It, it does. doesn't look good. It and I, I, like, at that moment, I'm like, I fucking hate this. And it's so sad that that one little, that one scene, like, because of everything else, because you're so invested with everything else, just completely rips you out of it and makes you like, I don't like this. I know. The screaming we, the screaming we saw it in the first time, genuine, genuine guffaws laugh, the whole screen bursts out laughing at that scene. And I agree, it's ridiculous, it's one of the worst things. It does also make no sense, given that Annie takes her head off yeah. in the treehouse, but then she's floating back up to the treehouse. Well, they're in the attic. He runs into the attic first to get away. What does it make sense is how she gets into the attic. Oh, my God. That's it. I have to say it. I, I burst out laughing when he goes into the attic and she's banging on the door with her face. And it, they, they speed it up. Yeah. And it looks like someone from a comedy film. <laughs> it looks like a scary movie scene. Um, I'm like, oh, God, that's bad. But I think the, that's the problem here. This goes batshit crazy. But for some of it, it does feel like it should have been batshit crazy in a different film. Right, okay. And yeah. Like, if, if they just look like the cutting the head off scene is intense, like the way she's looking at him and just like piano wiring an egg, you're just like, oh my God, that's awful. Um, and even the freaky naked people, you're a bit like, oh God, that's quite scary. Like, how long have they been there? Like, you know, or while well, he's he, been Right, he, does, he doesn't dive out until he sees that naked man. His, his mum saw in a head off. He's fine with that. Tubby naked bloke. He screams and dives out the window. Homophobia. That's what yeah. this film represents. <laughs> it's made his choices. Um, the thing is with the with the naked people, they are actually dotted around throughout the film as well. So at the beginning, the guy who's eyeing oh, sounds weird to say it, but the guy who's eyeing up Charlie at the funeral, he's yeah. in he's in the congregation <laughs> at the end. Yeah, so he's the first naked person we see. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's got that really fixed smile, which is quite freaky. Yeah. Uh, I think this, I feel like as well, when I watched this film, I felt like um, there were kind of harps to, or like um, 
Harps, is that the right word? Like throwbacks, love letters. References? References to like Rosemary Baber. Mm, yeah. Um, Jonah, it felt like the neighbour in Rosemary's Baby, the whole I'm a prep you for what we need to do. Um, because obviously that's what she does, preps her to get the, do the seance so that we can get everyone in the right places for when Charlie possesses Peter. Yeah. One of my favourite Joni bits is when they're doing the seance and um, she's calling out to her grandchild and Annie says, can we please stop? And she just goes, what? And she gets so offended with her as if, as if to go, can you not see what's happening right now? Mm. Why do you want to stop this? And then she just automatically goes back into niceties going, yeah, no worries, in your own time. So I think it's like, I think she's a really good actress. I'm not sure of her name. Anne Dowd. Her name is Anne Dowd. I think she's a really good actress. I like her. I think she plays her part well in getting, like I said, Annie to where she needs to be. Yeah. I do really enjoy Hereditary. The first time I watched it, I didn't really like it at all. Uh, I think I saw that with you anyway. Fair. Um, and I was a little underwhelmed. Um, this time when I watched it, I definitely got a lot more out of it than I did the first time. Um, but it, I did nothing cleared up. So I kind of knew, I knew the concept as in there was, there, no, I didn't really pick anything new up from it. So I guess, I guess it's a multi, multi watch film to try and get them other pieces of information that help you build up the story. Uh, but I thought the story was kind of simple and laid out from the get go with, the, the clues that are given, you know. I, just... I didn't myself on first watch, I'll admit. I, I wasn't receptive to them at all. But again, as we said, that sometimes I will go on my own little tangent and try and take it in a different direction. I think it should be going. And when it turns out not to be, I've clearly just missed a load of stuff. Oh, yeah. So you went in with a preconceived idea of what you thought the film would be. So I I had a preconceived idea of what the, I thought the film would be, which is why when Charlie died, I was shocked because it threw me. But it didn't, you know, once once Charlie died and then we went a bit further on, then I was like, oh, right, now I get why they've killed Charlie off. I, I so think, I do I think... get it. Um, but you also gave me the, you, you before we went in, you said... Um, it's not going to be what you expect it to be. So you also give me a preconceived idea to go against my instincts a little bit. Mm. Um, so, you know, so you probably helped me out. Good, I think. I think the, the thing is now with, because it, it does tend to happen with A24 films, I've learned my lesson. So, I mean, I, I think it's quite obvious what Midsummer's about. And trust me, when I can cover Midsummer, I will cover Midsummer because I'm an A24 whore. I can't help it. Um, but, like, when I went into Us after that, I I totally blanked my mind and went, right, let's just see where this goes. And I didn't have anything in there that I... But obviously, Us is for another time. Us is definitely for another time. But Hereditary, back to that. Hereditary. Yeah, I think I, I've given the viewers um, an insight into two of your future choices, though. If you haven't seen me on Twitter raving about them, you probably will in the next three days because I tend to do that all the time. So, hereditary. I there is not enough good things I can say about it. It is smart. It's scary. It's heartbreaking. It's filled with grief. It's filled with sorrow. It's <laughs> not to be too simplistic it's got some amazing 
scary scenes in there, I happen to think. Um, and you know what? I, I, I can't, I can't, I, I'll just end up going back and saying everything I just said about it again. So please vote for Hereditary. It is the best, in my opinion. That's not to say that yours too are. I, I do enjoy both films. But for me, Hereditary is the best. Well, there you go. Uh, those were our choices. So, you know, if you liked our arguments, let us know which one you want to pick for your favourite. You've got The Last Exorcism, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, or Hereditary to choose from. I will now hand you over to Christopher for the usual social media jargon. Social media jargon. Yeah, just to say, if you have enjoyed the episode and you want to let us know, or if you want to just get in contact with us about anything else, or is up for chatting to people, please hear us up. You can find us at Spit Grays on both Twitter and Instagram. It's I Spit on Your Grays on Facebook. If you want to email us for any reason whatsoever, you can reach us at electricpossums at gmail.com. And the poll will be out shortly after you're listening to this episode, hopefully. So please vote and just drop us a note underneath just to let us know why you picked your choice. We do love reading and seeing what you're thinking. And please do not forget to rate, review and subscribe. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Tatty bye.